What's an instance where two sides, they, they oppose each other, and then someone leaves their team or their side to go to the other side precisely because they saw the power that the enemy has? We might think of a soldier who's in war and they see that they're about to lose the war and they maybe switch sides. Do we have any Star Wars fans here? Oh, wow, only a few. I am very concerned. Thank you, Carl. Somebody. I was proud of it. I know that the, the prequels are, are really bad. They're terrible, except for episode three. But, but what caused Anakin to, to leave the Jedis and, and go to the dark side? What led him to do that? Well, he was having dreams and visions of his wife Padme dying, and he didn't know how to save her. He didn't know how to help her. And then he would go to Emperor Palpatine, who was secretly on the dark side, and he was telling Anakin that the dark side of the Force has the power to save her from either dying or even bring her back from the dead. And so Anakin, not knowing whether the Jedis could do that or not, he switches sides to the dark side because he thinks he can save his wife. He sees that there's more power there. In our text this morning, Paul's going to encounter some people that love power. They're fascinated by it. They're drawn to it. They're into magic. And when they see the power that the kingdom of God has over the kingdom of darkness, it attracts them to Jesus. They're convicted of practicing magic and they renounce it and follow the king. So Paul is still in Ephesus. If you remember in Acts uh, last week, he left Corinth, he traveled to Ephesus and he met some people who were followers of uh, John the Baptist. He talked to them, he asked them if they'd been baptized in Jesus' name and received the Spirit. They said no. He preached the gospel, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. They were converted. The point with all that here for our purposes now is that Paul has had a, uh, a good time so far uh, in Ephesus. And so now, in our text, he's about to encounter some people whose God is power. And what we are going to see today is a clashing of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of darkness. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So verse 11 is a general statement about what Paul, a God is doing through Paul. When you read and you, and you see clauses and this and that, you want to see how they work together. This is a general statement. And when you're doing your Bible studies, your devotions in the morning or in the evening, whenever you do it, you want to start asking the text questions. You want to ask it questions. And so here's a question. How was God working mightily through Paul? Verse 11, God was working mightily through Paul. Let's ask the question, how? How was he working through Paul? Well, the end of verse 12. Through him, 
people were being healed of their diseases and the evil spirits came out of them. So two things, healings and exorcisms, healings and casting out of demons. In the Gospels, that's often the summary statement about Jesus is going from town to town. It said he would heal people of their diseases and he would be casting out demons. That's often said about Jesus. And so now we're seeing his followers do the same. But to me, maybe not to you, I don't know, I have a sort of an issue with this. What's strange to me is how God is using Paul to do these healings and to cast out demons. Look at 12 from the beginning. Even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So we often read about how a disciple, an apostle, he'll come, he'll put his hands on someone, uh, they'll pray for them, a demon will come out, they'll be healed. But it's not very often that we hear about, you know, something that just touched their skin is now healing them or, or casting out a demon. We saw something similar with Peter in Acts 5. I'll, I'll read part of it. It says, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join in, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multiples of both, uh, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them and heal them. So Peter walks by, a shadow touches them, and they're healed. This is, to me, this is a little, a little strange, the way that it's done. And I think when you read it, you might, some commentators are, are perplexed by it too, but it could, it could come off as like maybe, you know, Luke's describing them as beyond human, as, as within them there's just this life force that, there's this walking, talking sort of wellspring of life, and they just give life to anything that they touch. And you do think of deity that way. Think of Jesus in the Gospels. He's going, there, there's a young girl, she's about to die, she's 12 years old. On his way to heal her, he's stopped by a woman who has had an issue of blood for 12 years. And she's too scared to talk to Jesus uh, to get healed. Uh, she's too afraid to come to him. And plus, there were too many people around him. And so she thought to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. And so she does. And Jesus says, you are healed and be well. Your faith has made you well. But I don't have any issue with Jesus doing this. He, he is divine. I think when we see this happening with Paul and Peter, we need to remember two things. Verse 11 makes it very clear that God is the one doing the miracles through Paul. It was never Paul as a human doing this. There's nothing special about Paul. He doesn't have some sort of uh, power that's ontological to him. It's simply God through the Spirit working through him. Second, I think the reason he's healing like this, is that God has a purpose in doing these works through Paul. God wants his kingdom, the kingdom of God, to expand. He wants it to overtake Ephesus. 
And so when he comes to this place, especially a place that craves power, he's wanting to do something so miraculous and do it in a way that there would be no question that God was with Paul and that his message about Jesus was true. This kind of miracle authenticates the message of the gospel of Jesus. I love reading some of the old theologians. I was reading Calvin on this, and Calvin also had uh, some issues, had some trouble with the, the, you know, them touching Peter's skin, or, uh, sorry, Paul's uh, handkerchief that touched his skin and healing people. But in his interpretation, he also came to the conclusion that the reason God is healing this way is to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. He says clearly, uh, Paul was given this power in order to prove himself a true apostle of Christ that the gospel might be believed and his ministry confirmed. Also, when God healed the sick with a handkerchief, it helped those who never seen the man embrace his teaching reverently. Uh, Calvin was also, you know, a slave to his own context, and he had to address the issues of the day, and often Catholics would argue about relics, and so he had to address that issue because there's something powerful in this handkerchief, and so it's, it's okay to, to have relics and things like that. But the point is, he saw the point as this miracle was testifying to the truth of the gospel, testifying to the truth of Jesus. And that would be my point for verses 11 and 12, is that miracles testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. But now we're about to come to two different groups that crave power, and they want Paul's power. Look at verse 13, the first group. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, name, uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And, and that's all we hear about them. So there's some Jews who, who believe that evil spirits exist. They believe that they possessed men and women, and so they wanted to cast them out, get rid of them. That was their job. They were Jewish exorcists. And I guess word got out that Paul was successful in exercising demons in, in Ephesus, so they saw that the way he did it was by saying Jesus' name. And so they adopt that. They're not actual believers in Jesus. They're just using it, and they're using Jesus as a tool to do something. They're not sincere. The next group is in verse 14. And they were also using the name of Jesus to cast out evil spirits. It says, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So we're introduced to the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva. Now, who were the sons of Sceva? Now, uh, this, this baffles commentators because they don't know in what sense they are sons of the Jewish high priest. There's a lot of speculation. Some say maybe that somehow they are related to the royal Jewish family. Others say that they actually weren't. He wasn't an actual Jewish high priest, that simply he just gave himself that name and it was false. You know, honestly, I, I don't know, and I can't tell you, and I don't know if anyone does. But their identity really is important. What's important is 
what happened to them and, and what they did. And as I said, in, in, in comparison to verse 13, like the Jewish exorcists, they're using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. But look at what happens. The demon talks back. He says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Can you imagine that you're, you see somebody here, you're casting out a demon, and then all of a sudden a voice starts talking back to you. That would be absolutely terrifying. But what's being said here, what's the demon communicating to them? When he says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? What he's saying is, essentially, I have no respect for you. I know that I have to listen to Jesus when he, when I, uh, I know that I have to listen to him. I know that Paul has authority to cast me out because God's working through him, but you don't have that authority. I don't have to respect you. Who are you? And so look at what the demon does to the seven sons as we keep going. And the man in whom the evil spirit, who, ha- who was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So he, he comes out of the man, he, he overpowers all of them, he beats them up, he bloodies them, sends them out into the streets naked. And one point, I think the point that we need to take away is this. At the root of exorcism, is God casting out the demons. There is no power in simply saying Jesus' name as a ritual unless God is working through it. You can't just adopt it and say it and and think that that's going to work. If God doesn't act, nothing is going to happen. Some people argue that the reason they couldn't cast out demons, demon, is because they didn't have faith, because they weren't true disciples. Now, I'm perplexed by this. Can, can unbelievers cast out demons? I'm not sure. Uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about the end time judgment. And he said, many of you are going to come up to me and you're going to say, Lord, Lord. And, uh, and I'll get to that in a second about what they're going to say. But he tells these people, I never knew you. I never knew you. Meaning they were unbelievers. But guess what the argument that, that they were using that they should, be, that should enter into the eternal kingdom? Did we not prophesy in your name? And didn't we not cast out demons in your name? So they're unbelievers casting out demons. Also, Jesus sends out the disciples to, to go cast out demons. And who's a part of that? Judas, right? And we know Judas wasn't a believer. So... I'm not sure. I think I would fall towards unbelievers can do that, but it's only if God is working through them. I think God works through unbelievers often. We've seen him work through a donkey. We've seen him work through prophets on the opposing side. We've seen him work through the enemy often, and I, and I think on occasion he does work through some unbelievers. But the evidence of people being saved... It is not that they're casting out demons, that God is working through them to cast out demons or to heal somebody. The evidence is their faith. 
The evidence is their faith. And so, if God can work through unbelievers, and sometimes I think he does, why were these two groups, the Jewish exorcists and the seven sons, why were they unsuccessful? Well, I already said God wants his kingdom to overtake Ephesus. He wants it to overrun Ephesus. And so, that's why he was successful through Paul. If the Jewish exorcists and the seven sons were successful, the people in Ephesus would have, might have attached themselves to them, might have attached themselves to the Jewish exorcists and not have believed Paul's message about Jesus. I think it was simply a missional purpose. But now, so we've seen Paul healing and exercising demons, God working through him. We've seen the uh, Jewish exorcist and the seven sons fail and be overpowered. Now we're about to see the result. Now we're about to see the result of what happens uh, to the community, to the city, starting in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greek, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So word got out to Ephesus that Paul has been casting out demons. He's been healing people. It also, the word got out that uh, about what happened to the seven sons and, their, and being attacked. And, uh, and people, when they heard this, they started fearing God. They started revering him. And it said they extolled Jesus's name. They extolled Jesus. They were praising him. And in verse 18, it actually says that they were now believers. They were now believers. What's the evidence of, of true faith? The evidence is a, is a transformed life, right? So we always say that there's two things, and these are actually the same thing. True faith implies repentance. Well, let's look. Verse 18 and 20, 18 to 20 gives evidence of repentance. Many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what does repentance mean? Repentance simply means a change of mind means you are changing your mind about something. And in this context, that would mean them changing their mind about following dark, uh, dark magic and dark practices and following Jesus, saying, I'm not going to do those things anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, I was asking this on Friday night sermon prep. I said, can you see repentance? And, and everybody said, yeah. And I said, if I want to be precise though, you can't actually see repentance. You don't know what's going on in someone's head, but you can see the evidence of repentance, the fruit of repentance, which is action. And, and we see that by them burning their books. Uh, in my own conversion story, I know that uh, you guys have heard this probably a few times before, but uh, I was drinking a bottle of alcohol, of vodka, every single night. I was doing drugs. I was looking at pornography. I was doing all kinds of other things that I'm honestly just too embarrassed to even say to you all publicly. And uh, as, after I called out to the Lord, I remember, and I've never had a moment like this in my life, just sitting on my bed 
and realizing I am done with all this. Like I'm not doing this anymore. And to me, that was true repentance. Like, I just settled in my mind, I'm not doing this anymore. And then the evidence of that was that I went and threw all of it away. I went and took it, the alcohol all down to the trash, the, the drugs, the uh, stop looking at pornography, my tobacco, everything just gone that one day. And so true repentance, and that's what I want you to see in this text, true repentance is followed by action. True repentance is followed by outward action, something that we can see. If someone has truly repented in Jesus Christ, their life will be changed. Their life will be transformed. And so the overall point I see in the narrative that if I have to put all of it together, when people see the power of God, the Spirit uses that and attracts people to Jesus. When people see the power of God, the Spirit uses that and attracts people to Jesus. What's the bigger issue happening here? If you guys have heard me preach, you guys have come to my Sunday schools and Bible says you guys know I love biblical theology. It's like, the, it's like the bigger story that's always happening. Scripture is so consistent. And I would love to sit here and just trace the kingdom of God from Genesis uh, to here, but I'm, I'm not gonna do that this morning. But I want you to put on your theological hats for a second. What I see happening here is the kingdom of God expanding by overtaking the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God expanding by overtaking the kingdom of Satan. We're witnessing the expansion of the kingdom of God. Scripture speaks over and over again about how the kingdom of God is going to start really small and then it's going to grow and grow and grow and expand and overtake the world. Uh, In Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And they ask him, you know, what is it like? And he says the kingdom of God is like some leaven, some yeast that you put into three measures of flour And eventually that tiny yeast comes and overtakes all of the flour. And the picture here is that the kingdom of God is going to start really small and it's going to expand and overtake the earth. The yeast is the disciples, the kingdom, and the flour is the world and the yeast just expands and takes over the entire world. Also, it's compared to a mustard seed. It starts really small and then it grows and grows and grows and is one of the biggest trees. So what does that look like then if Jesus is right, if the kingdom of God is going to start small and then expand and take over the world, what does that look like? Well, I think the kingdom was inaugurated at Jesus' death and resurrection. And then what happened? It started with a small group of Jewish disciples and apostles. And then they were sent out. We are literally witnessing the expansion of the kingdom of God uh, every single week as we go through Acts. We are witnessing the kingdom of God overtake this town, overtake this town, and just expand and expand and expand. And we can see it taking over like the yeast, taking over the flour. We can see the kingdom of God overtaking the world as Christianity is the world's number one religion today. And that's what we are seeing in our text. And it does that by clashing with the kingdom of darkness. In our text, what we've seen is demonic 
possession. Demonic forces are possessing unbelievers. They are manipulating believers. And exorcism, it demonstrates that the kingdom of God in Jesus as the king is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. He's more powerful than Satan. Jesus one time, he was trying to compare how strong he is, how strong his kingdom is over the kingdom of darkness. What does he say in the gospels? After he cast out someone successfully, he compared himself to someone who went into a strong man's house. Whoever's in this house, he's really strong. And Jesus said, I went in there with the spirit, bound this man up, and I took his possessions. And essentially what he's saying is, the strong man is Satan, it's the demon. Jesus is saying, I'm more powerful than them. When I cast out a demon by the Holy Spirit, I am more powerful than them. And what does he say about it right after that? He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. What we are seeing in exorcism is the kingdom of God demonstrating greater power and overcoming the kingdom of darkness. But what does that mean for us? Should you become a Christian exorcist? The way that people get rid of demonic possession is by conversion. The way that you truly get rid of demonic possession is by conversion, it's by faith. And what that means for you is that you are a soldier in the kingdom of God and your job is to take the powerful gospel message to captives and set them free. You are to proclaim the gospel and that has the power to rid them from the manipulation that they have from demonic forces. And that's what I want you to take away from this. Transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God does not come through exorcism. Exorcism means nothing without conversion. Jesus also, he once, he, he told a story about a man who had a demon cast out of him. The, the demon went away and he said that the demon, he went to go look to find rest. He went to go find another body to possess and he couldn't find one. And so what he did is he went and he found seven other evil spirits who were even more evil and stronger than he was, and they went back to the man that he originally left. And Jesus said his state was worse than it was before. Now that he has, I guess, eight demons now, he is worse off than he was before the exorcism, right? So exorcism means nothing. If you don't replace this demonic spirit with the Holy Spirit, the exorcism means absolutely nothing. Conversion means everything. When the gospel is preached, the spirit works on hearts and minds, and when they believe, demonic forces go away, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence within people. If you're here today, and you're not believing in Jesus, I wanna say whether you are thinking of it or not, whether you ever give a thought to demonic forces or Satan, you are in the kingdom of darkness this morning. You are carrying out his will, which is opposed to the will of God, which is opposed to the kingdom of God. 
But Jesus, this king we've been talking about today, he went to the cross. And when he was on the cross, he stood in the place of sinners. He stood in the place of sinners and he stood in your place if you will repent and believe. He's inviting you, come to the kingdom. Be freed from being manipulated by demonic forces. As Paul says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with the evil forces and powers. And I'm, and I'm offering you today this life-saving, this powerful gospel. It can set you free. It can set you free. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel that saved me. Thank you for your gospel that has saved many in this room. We were all doing the will of Satan. As Ephesians 2 says, we were all following after the prince of darkness. You saved us. You took away us being manipulated and following the enemy. And you put your spirit within us. And we are thankful for him. And we pray, Father, that we wouldn't be selfish and keep it to ourselves, that we know that yes, there are people that oppose the gospel and yes, they are sinning. But as Paul says, we battle not with flesh and blood, we've, with, the, with the demonic forces, with the powers, with the spirits. And we know, Father, that we need to set them free. We know that though they oppose us, we, the gospel has the power to set them free. It has the power to banish away demonic forces and your kingdom to spread and include one new person. And we pray that would happen this week. Extend your kingdom, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.